Hello, friends, and welcome to the National Constitution Center. I am Jeffrey Rosen, the president and CEO of this wonderful institution. Friends, as you know, we're a nonprofit, and we rely on your support to put on wonderful programs like this. And I'm thrilled to share that we are launching an exciting crowdsourcing campaign. Thanks to our friends at the John Templeton Foundation, every dollar that you give to support the We the People and Live at the NCC podcasts that will run the audio feed of this great program will be matched uh, one-to-one up to a total of $234,000 to celebrate the 234th anniversary of the ratification of the Constitution. You can go to constitutioncenter.org slash we the people, and it would be wonderful if you could give any amount, $5, $10 or more, to signal your membership in this meaningful community of lifelong learners and your support for the programming that makes it possible. Welcome to Live at the National Constitution Center, the podcast sharing live constitutional conversations and debates hosted by the center in person and online. I'm Tanea Talber, Senior Director of Town Hall Programs. Last week, Justice Stephen Breyer announced his decision to retire after 28 years on the Supreme Court. Justice Breyer joined Jeff Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, last spring for a live online program to discuss the Constitution, civility, the court, and more. In light of Justice Breyer's announcement, we wanted to revisit that conversation for today's episode. Listen as the Justice discusses how he goes about making decisions, share some stories and life lessons from his time on the bench, and share some of his favorite books and authors. He also explains why civic education is so important today, why people need to read across the political divides more than ever, and why he's optimistic about the future of America. Here's Jeff to get the conversation started. Welcome, Justice Breyer. We're so honored to have you here. Uh, This is our final class of the year for the Constitution Center's uh, live online classes for middle and high school students. We launched these a year ago. We've reached 200,000 students across America teaching the Constitution. And I want to begin by asking you, because you're one of America's most inspiring advocates for civic education, why is it important for all of these great students to study civics in the Constitution? Well, they're part of this country and they have to know how it works and they have to know how the government works and they have to understand that they are part of the government and uh, that it isn't a separate thing, uh, but that in this country and with this document, the Constitution, uh, there are certain basic principles that require their participation. And I usually say I can't tell the students what to do, but I know perfectly well that John Adams and Madison and the people who wrote this document would think if they don't participate, we won't have a democracy. And they won't participate if they don't know how it works. And so I'd say first and foremost is that you have to know how this government works and what your role in is it is is in it and how these different groups of people get together. We have 330 million. They all think something different. And we have a governmental system that tries to bring them together. Well, they have to understand it. That's why. So we can maintain it. Wonderful. They have to understand it so we can maintain it. It sounds like uh, Benjamin Franklin, a republic, madam, if you can keep it. Um, Justice Breyer, you have some wonderful books behind you. You are such a reader and a teacher. And uh, I saw recently a list of five books that you recommended and influenced you a lot. And they included... Tocqueville's Democracy in America, The Education of Henry Adams, Austin's How to Do Things with Words, Camus' The Plague, and 
In Search of Lost Time by Proust, which you're reading in French. Do you want to pick one or two of those books and tell us why it's important to you and why the students should think about reading it? Well, I, I've, I, I've often thought, and I love this book, you want to know what um, this country is like and the ups and downs, Henry Adams. I mean, Henry Adams lived 1838 until the, uh, around 1920. And he thought at that time, perhaps he would be president because the Adamses were all presidents. His grandfather had been president, his great grandfather. His father was a famous and very valuable ambassador to England and kept England from siding with the South and won the Civil War for the North. Through what he did, he certainly helped. And Adams comes into this country believing he's as close to an aristocrat as there is. And by the time he's in his middle age, he says, there is no such thing as an aristocrat in America. There's a democracy in America. And he looks around in Washington. He lived not far from where I am this minute. And the Hay Adams Hotel is where he lived. And he looked out at the White House. And he saw, you know, at that time in the late 19th century, they didn't have to worry about people giving campaigns sorry, campaign contributions to candidates, they had to worry about people giving bribes to candidates. It was not a good period. From the point of view of honesty in government, you have to remember if you've seen them in school, the NASCAR tunes, the sugar trust, the oil trust, every trust behind every senator, behind every congressman. And he looked around and said, oh my God, I mean, maybe democracy doesn't work. Yeah, that sound familiar? And then he said, ah, but what's the choice? The same thing that Winston Churchill said many years later, of course it's a bad system, except for the others. And uh, you read that and you begin to understand it. And you begin to understand that all the unfortunate things we're reading in the newspapers, this is going on and that's going on, it's happened before. This is not the first time that people have become discouraged with the democratic process. And this is not the first time that we've had real racism in this country. And it used to be slavery before that. Adams came down here before the Civil War and he looked out across the South and he said, those people are great gentlemen. I don't think they're great gentlemen. Look at what they're doing. I mean, he was very much against slavery. So you read through that and you begin to understand what still are the pros and cons of the way we've set ourselves up. And on balance, I think he thinks and you think and I think on balance. Yeah, it's better than the alternatives. 330 million people. They've been able to govern themselves to a considerable degree. They've been able to make the system work more or less. And they have been able to maintain uh, a system where people do listen, the governments do listen to the people and uh, there are freedoms and it's not perfect. Well, he had every one of those problems. So read what he has to say about it and read what it was like during that time. Wonderful. And what did you learn from Tocqueville and what do you make of his concern that virtue and self-interest rightly understood might not be enough to sustain Americans at a time when individualism and morality were declining. 
No, there, there is right now. It's not just that. But I mean, Tuckville understands pretty well how America is going to work. And he wants to say to the Europeans, it is possible. If you look at America. To see. That you can have a workable system that's based to a considerable degree on democracy and different uh, organizations that organize people and come together and debate. He would say there's a clamor I hear every time I come to America. It's people shouting. No, they shouldn't shout. But it's people debating issues. And they'll try things and they'll try to work together and they'll experiment and some will work and some will fail. And uh, this is a big mess, this country. But by and large, it's going to work, he thought. But he said, oh, you know, I see two terrible problems. I don't know how they're going to get over these. And this was in the 1840s. He said one of them is what are they going to do uh, about the Indian tribes that themselves seem to live in this place? And he said, I don't think that will stop America because I don't think they'll treat them very well. The Americans won't, i.e. the Europeans, i.e. the Europeans won't treat the Indians very well and they'll take over. And that is what happened. He says, I don't know what they're going to do about slavery. They can't keep together a country that rests on slavery. And that's going to be a nightmare. He says that very perspicacious. Very perspicacious. So he's worried about two things that I think we still should be and are worried about. And he describes pretty well how our institutions did and, and still do work. Don't ask for perfection. Uh, and uh, you read that and you say, ah, ah. We have a job that was similar to the job of probably Ben Franklin in your Constitution Center and Abraham Lincoln in the Gettysburg Address, we are still an experiment. And will this experiment work? And then I want to say to the students, it's going to be your job. That's a bit preachy, <laughs> but it is your job and the job of your children. And after that, to see that this experiment does work and no one ever knows for sure. You learn that from Tocqueville. You learn that from uh, Henry Adams. And you just keep trying. So much of the success of the experiment depends on compromise, deliberation, prudence, listening to the other side. Those are all values you've championed. You saw them from your father when you were growing up and he was on the San Francisco school board where the institution worked. You saw that in the Senate when you saw Republicans and Democrats coming together over major reforms. Today, people are concerned that the system is broken, that things are so polarized that both sides are just not listening to each other and we're retreating into armed camps. Are you optimistic or pessimistic that the system will keep working and what can we do to make it work? Well, I don't, I don't know. I am basically optimistic and I don't know how much that's justified. Because I think that's what Senator Kennedy used to say. He said the country swings, you know, it swings. And sometimes to extremes in one way or sometimes to extremes the other way. But it sort of writes itself eventually. And when, uh, my being, when I worked on the staff of the Senate, I thought I was in an institution, and that's true of Congress, that will respond to what their constituents want. 
was true at my confirmation. That anybody, the senators will ask the questions they want to ask, and they'll ask the they'll want to ask the questions that they think their constituents want to ask. And when enough people in the country say, "Look, what I really want is what we learned in the fifth grade that people work together," they'll get it. And uh, so uh, what you do, I saw Senator Kennedy do this all the time. Uh, uh, He was a Democrat. Republican disagrees with him strongly. But you need that Republican support. Talk to them. And don't talk to them. I have a better point than you. And your point's really evil and bad. You say, what do you think? My friend, what do you think? And get them talking. Once they start talking, eventually... They'll say something you agree with. And then you say, well, let's see if we can't work with that. And when you work with that, if there is, if keep going, you might have, you won't get everything you want, but you might get on balance a success. And if it's a success, what I saw Kennedy do a lot was the press conference would be there and Kennedy would say, Senator Hatch was so helpful on this. Talk to him. He really got this going. Give the credit to other people. Credit is a weapon. And if your thing succeeds, there'll be plenty of credit to go around. If it doesn't succeed, who wants the credit? And and I saw him act on that over and over and learn something from it. Well, that's called talking to people, trying to get people together. Uh, When I was in the fifth grade, Mrs. Squataguatza would divide our class in San Francisco into groups and we'd each have a project. What is it that helped make San Francisco a cosmopolitan city? And you take this part and you take that part. We give you one grade. So you better get on with the others. So learning how to get on with others is is uh, part of what we do in schools. And I think that's still true. And maybe people at the national level are getting angry at each other. Well, what about at the local level? I saw during this, uh, uh, this pandemic up in Cambridge, we were with our grandchildren for more than a year in the house. Well, there were groups in the neighborhood that tried to get to uh, put people together to bring food to people who needed the food, Uh, or they'd help get them to the doctor if that was necessary, or help do all kinds of things. There are dozens of parts of public life where people can work together. And so it's fairly obvious that for each of the students who's here and all those who aren't here, public life should be and is part of their lives. And you can get together with other people in all kinds of different ways. And uh, you don't have to make a living out of being the most divisive person. (laughs) You You can do pretty well by trying to get people together in a thousand different ways. I think we still have that ability and that talent. And so I'm optimistic. Wonderful. Well, your optimistic inspires all of us. You uh, tell us about the court. You recently gave a lecture at Harvard and you uh, caution people not to view the court as a political body. You said justices are not junior level politicians. I believe jurisprudential differences account for most, perhaps all, judicial disagreements. Tell us why the court is not a group of politicians in Rome, in Rhodes, and why uh, citizens should respect uh, the institutional legitimacy of the court as something more than just politics. Well, it's taken a long time to earn uh, legitimacy in the sense that people will follow the laws the judges think it is, and even when they disagree with it strongly. And maybe it's wrong. I've dissented enough to know that I think some of it is wrong. All right? And, and so, but, but, but the rule of law is follow it even when it's wrong. 
possibly can. Otherwise, you won't have a rule of law. But the political part, I think, look, again, bringing back, going back to Senator Kennedy, we used to play a game, which is suppose Senator, the senator uh, got a telephone call from the mayor of Worcester at the same time from the secretary of the treasury. Which call would he take first? Well, we knew the answer. We bet heavily he would take the call from the mayor of Worcester. Why? Because that's where his constituents are. That's politics. Are you a Republican or a Democrat? What will the majority be at the executive session? Can we get people there? Is this popular? Is it not? I don't see that at the court. I, I really haven't seen it. Start thinking how popular you are. You, boy, it is that bubble. Don't do it. Uh, I haven't seen it. That's what I call real politics. Well, what about ideology? Are you an Adam, Adam Smith free enterpriser? Or are you a uh, Maoist troublemaker or something? I, if I'm writing an opinion and I think that ideology is coming into it, I, I think twice or three times. That's not the job. Well, there is a different thing. It is true. I did grow up in San Francisco. I did go to a public high school, to Lowell High School there. I've lived the life I've lived. And by the time you're middle-aged or so, you have views about the country. If you're a lawyer, about what law is about. Uh, they're called philosophical or jurisprudential or very general or something. And you can have somewhat different values than some other person. And those are inside you. And you can't jump out of your own skin. You get a few cases anyway, not as many as people think, but a few cases where you are uh, interpreting a word like liberty. You know, that word doesn't explain itself, not in detail. Well, you'll be influenced by your values. I used to think too bad everybody doesn't agree with me, but it's a big country, you know, and, and uh, there are three, as I've said, there are many, many, many millions of people and they do think different things. And they do have somewhat different values. And it isn't terrible if you have a Supreme Court of nine people and they're made up of people and some of them have different values. And indeed, some of them have different judis jurisprudential approaches. Some of them lean more in the direction of having clear rules. Some of them, probably me, lean, lean more in the direction of God, life is a mess. Let's just try to clarify this a little bit and not leave decide too much too quickly. And uh, uh, so people have different views uh, and uh, people tend to stick to, uh, to a degree, uh, to uh, different jurisprudential views. And that explains a lot about why you say similar lineups. It's not conservative, liberal, particularly. I mean, sometimes you can define it that way, but more often you can't. It's different jurisprudential views. So I say, look, don't get mixed up with real politics. That isn't what's happening. Now, if I'm really honest about it and think about, I say, well, well, it's a little more complicated if you're ready for a little more complication. <laughs> That's right. I mean, it's a little more complicated even than that because after all, suppose you think deeply that free enterprise is the secret of success in this country. Or suppose you deeply think that at least some moves towards socialism are surely justified and will help. Okay. Is that a political view or is that a philosophical view? Is that political philosophy or is that uh, real politics? Well, I think those things are often hard to separate out. 
And I can't say that things like that never influence a decision. The cases we get, there's a lot to be said on both sides, much more than you might think. And so you have some influence there. And then over long periods of time, there will be changes. Um, think of Roosevelt and Truman having ultimately appointed the entire court and a shift in sort of basic philosophy in the direction of the New Deal, i.e. agencies that people used to think were unconstitutional, bringing power to Washington, which people used to think was unconstitutional. No, it isn't unconstitutional. At a very broad level, over very long periods of time, you can see shifts. And you can even see real politics brought in. Think of the Warren Court and their efforts to see that the country was desegregated because no one was supporting them. Congress wasn't, the, I mean, they got very little support from other branches uh, and they're trying to make meaningful the desegregation decision. Well, they might not take the miscegenation case for a while. Is it? Well, is that, what's that? Is that politics? So it's a mix, isn't it? And anybody who thinks it's pure politics is absolutely wrong. And anyone who thinks, well, if I define politics broadly enough and look at the court in broad enough lenses, I can say, well, there is something. If you, as long as you hesitate like that, you'll get a more informed reaction. So on balance, I think, no, it isn't politics. And I don't want to go around and saying, no, not in any sense ever either. All right. That's a picture. And when I wrote and gave the lecture at Harvard, I, I, I try to give that picture. I want people to have that picture because I think it's a truthful picture. That's just fascinating. Um, that's the most subtle and clear counter to the claim that it's all politics that I've heard you or anyone give. And you just told us that it's not partisan politics, but it might be political philosophy or the statesmanship or pragmatic concern for the role of the court, so it's complicated. And we hope to have you back to the Constitution Center in the fall to talk about your book. But I want to ask you now, you said for you, life is messy and you just try to make things a bit better, and you've been called a pragmatist. Tell us about your jurisprudential approach and what you think pragmatism is. Well, it's, pragmatism is not sitting there doing whatever you think is good. I think pragmatism, both with statutes and with the Constitution itself, plays this kind of a role. When you have a statute, and the statute has some words in it, and these words can be interpreted in two or three different ways, and the issue is how to interpret them. What do they mean? Well, I think it probably is a desirable thing, among other things. Of course, you read the words. If the word is vegetable, that isn't a fish, all right? You know, you're not going to go outside the words. But it often doesn't give you the answer. And you look at the history, and you look at the purposes, and you look at the consequences, too, and you'll try to evaluate them from what, the point of view of what a reasonable legislator, that's Professor Sachs, Professor Hart, you know, what would a reasonable legislator writing this statute have thought that these words were there to achieve? And then the people who don't like that approach say, but there is no such thing as a reasonable legislature. A, that isn't true. But B, if you but were true, by making up the reasonable legislator, you would get a more rational system of law, which would play into the basic purpose of law, 
which is to try to make people able to live better together. The Constitution, too. I would say one of the great unsaid purposes of the Constitution, though everybody says it, but they aren't taking in that this is a constitutional principle. It is what you had Franklin say. Hey, this is a document here. And one, it's not just democracy. It's not just human liberties. It's not just organizing the government. It's also something that's going to work. And it's going to work for a long time. And you think about that. When you have certain difficult constitutional cases, and you try to choose something that moves in the direction of something that will work for a long time, among other things. Now, that's a rough description of what I mean by pragmatism. Wonderful. Um, what is the role of precedent in pragmatism? Colin Thibault, who's one of our star students here in the class, says that according to SCOTUS blog, you, Justice Breyer, voted to overturn a precedent the third least among 11 justices who were surveyed. Why is precedent important? Law is in part about stability. Part of what it's doing is to allow people to plan their lives. Part of their ability to plan their lives is going to be for either their lawyers or somebody else's lawyers or people in a community who are interested in this to know what the law is. And the law might not be perfect. But if you're changing it all the time, people won't know what to do. And the more you change it, the more people will ask to have it changed. And the more the court hears that, the more they'll change it. And the more that you see, it's a kind of circle which even if it doesn't start out that way, warns you against, now you can't say never. What about Brown and Plessy? You can't say never, but be careful. And you really have to be careful sitting in where I'm sitting in this in this job, because what you first think is for three or four years anyway, sometimes five, sometimes three, what Douglas said, he said, you go around frightened to death. How do I know I'll be able to do it? I, I wanted to be appointed, but my God, it had to be very lucky to get appointed here. Just the wheel of fortune had to turn around. And there we are. Now I'm here. Can I really do it? And people really do get worried and they aren't quite certain how it works. And it takes a few years before you figure out how you're going to do it. And then you begin to think, well, all right, I can do my best. But you know what? All these people who were here in the past and, and all the people who are here now, they're just people like me. And that's a dangerous thought. <laughs> but it does creep in. And then you begin to think, not only are they people like me, but they got this past case wrong. And then after that, you think, this is my only chance to change it. I better change it now or never. And then you're in perdition. <laughs> and then, then you've lost the game. Because at that point, there'll be too many changes. So you have to guard against that little insidious method of thinking that's caused by human nature, but, but sneaks in. And just keep it to the rare case where it's really necessary. It's fascinating to hear you say at the beginning you weren't quite sure you could do it, but then you got confidence that you could. And yet I well, also I wouldn't put it that way. You get confidence you can do it as well as you can do it. That's <laughs> see. <laughs> well, you're doing it extremely well, but at the same time, I hear you say that humility is important. Is it? 
Uh, yeah, I, I mean, humility is a dangerous word. I mean, what is it? I, I would call it character. <laughs> Try to keep a decent character. Now, that's also corny. And the only one who will know whether you're trying your best to keep your character to be a decent character, you, no one else. You know, some newspaper writes, what a brave decision. It would have been brave to do the opposite. You know, I mean, that's, people will uh, tend to agree with you. They'll say, yes, that's right. But be careful of that. Remember, I mean, you and a few friends, maybe, and people you trust, tell you the truth. Justice Holmes used to say he learned that he wasn't God. Well, what's the, what's the danger? Did you come to think you're God? Uh, you don't come to think you're God, but you just tend to think, oh, I think it's so it must be right. Hmm. Yeah. Stay away. Stay away. Keep, uh, you know, somebody says a compliment. Thank you. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Look, I learned after about three, four years, we were at some kind of an event here in the court with young lawyers. And two came up and said, oh, Justice Breyer, would you ever sign my program? And I just really think your opinions are wonderful. They're so good. I really like them. So I said, of course, I will sign your program. So I signed his program. And as he walked away, he turned to his friend, thinking I was out of hearing. And he said, that makes four. <laughs> <laughs> That will teach you humility. What, what, what else have you learned during your decades on the court? Court is a, what have I learned? I don't know. I've probably learned a lot of things. I've learned a lot of things. I've learned that I have less power to persuade people than I thought I might. I, I've learned that uh, uh, the best you can do is you do your best. The interest of this job is, is uh, and, and, the interest of this job is, is that you have to sort of put out your best all the time. You, 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 the cases are, are interesting and difficult. They matter to people. Don't let up. And, and uh, there you are. And as you get older, you think that's a very big virtue, a very big virtue. Uh, because uh, we have what we have, all of us. Whatever it is, everybody has something. And to be in a situation where you have to use that something really you hope for the benefit of other people that is a privilege that is a privilege how have you kept operating at your fullest level do you have a daily schedule where you set aside time for reading and time for leisure what, what's your what's your what are your habits and your your study regime <laughs> Driving Joanna crazy. I got up. <laughs> <laughs> right. We've, my wife of 53 years. I, I would get up at 7.30 or 7 o'clock and do my stretching. <laughs> You're stretching. And then uh, we'll have breakfast. Now, these days, we have a cup of tea and some fruit in the garden. It's nice. And uh, grandchildren are helpful. And they've been living with us up in Cambridge. And their little noise level is a little loud, but it's fun to have them there. And and uh, then uh, I, I will work. I'll, I'll come into my office. Or last year, it's been working at my uh, word processor up at my desk, and um, uh, or talking to my lurk, my clerks every day on Zoom. I'll do that, and and I try to do a little, uh, you know, fake bike riding in the afternoon uh, on one of those machines, and uh, meditating. Actually, got Joanna got me to do that. That's helpful. 
And then in the evening, uh, we'll, uh, recently, this last year, we've been probably, I've been watching MASH. Have you ever seen MASH? I love it. I think. Suicide is painless. What? Yeah. (laughs) Singing it. Yeah. 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 And Alan Alda is great. And uh, uh, I I enjoy it or I'll read. I'll usually read before I found one of the worlds uh, before I fall asleep. And I I shouldn't criticize this book. It's a very interesting book, but it's the history of the Hundred Years' War, minute by minute. (laughs) 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 So so, uh, there we are. I'll I'll read. And then then, there we are. Let, let, give us, give me a tip about meditation. When you meditate, what do you do? Do you try to clear your mind? Do you focus on something? What do you, what do no, you do? I focus on my foot. Very interesting. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you go up through your body and try to relax your body and get up to your head. And by that time, your eyes have sort of closed and then go down again. And then you might say a word or Amida or something like that. And then the alarm will go off after about 30 or 40 minutes. And that's it. And it's just, and it does, it does in fact calm you down. It does make you relax. And you do feel, uh, you know, feel better. So I recommend it. And you do broad reading outside of the law. Yeah, I read a lot of different things. Yes. We read, you mentioned one of them, the plague. I mean, this was a good time to read the plague. And I used to read it because I thought, well, it's, it's uh, it's Camus. It's uh, it's about lawyers. Really, it's about the Nazis occupying Nazi uh, occupying France, and it's about the need for keeping the uh, the plague germ away from people, uh, which comes back over and over and over and over. And I figure, well, this is good for one of my talks, which I've now used it in fifteen different talks. <laughs> but but I say, look, the uh, the rule of law is one of the weapons people have to keep that plague of germ, to keep that germ plague in remission. But I, I reread it recently, and it's more than that, actually. Uh, I mean, it is about the human condition. It is a well-written book. It is uh, something that you'll see all kinds of different people. That's why I tell the students frequently going to college, I'll do that. Try the humanities. If you're an undergraduate, you know, you can do a lot worse. Uh, you learn a foreign language, or you uh, learn something about history or literature, and you'll see how other people live who aren't you not even your family. And, and that's a very valuable thing to do. Speaking of a foreign language, you have described to me the experience of reading Proust in French and what it feels like. I, can you share that with our friends? Because it's, you, you describe it so memorably. No, I'm not sure what you have in mind. But I mean, I, I, I think he, uh, he is a great author. He's sort of, I mean, Shakespeare to me is the greatest, of of the English-speaking authors. And, 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 and what Proust is a kind of Shakespeare of the inner mind. That is, he remembers everything. I don't know how. It's not really all about him, but maybe it is. <laughs> and uh, he, he, he remembers everything, and he, he, he uh, describes human experience. He doesn't have the experience of having children. But other than that, he goes through a tremendous amount of human, different human experiences. So there are all kinds of things in the book. And he does it in poetry, a kind of poetry, as does Shakespeare. Kittredge said that about Shakespeare. He said he knows every human being. He knows every kind of desire. He knows every kind of, of different uh, 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 reactions of human reactions better than the person does himself. 
and he describes them all better than the person could describe himself, and he puts it all in poetry. Well, Proust does something like that about, about sensations, and if you had one thing in there that I, that I think I came out thinking that I didn't, it isn't that men, women are rational animals. That's Aristotle, I think, the rational animal. Ha, ha, ha. <laughs> I mean, maybe. <laughs> Try, that's good. But I do think that I came out of that thinking, well, uh, what human beings do is they put form on things. They take this vast flux, which they first see when they're one month old, <laughs> you know, and they try to impose form on it. And that's why it matters so much what you learn and what you see when you're a year old or two years or three years or four or five or six or seven. And that keeps coming back. And uh, I mean, I am a child of what? Pre-war, I was born in 1938. I can remember World War II. I did grow up in San Francisco. In the 40s, late 40s, I remember. 50s, college, law school. All right? And did that shape how I will see the world? Of course it did. And it's the same for everyone. And uh, that's why different generations have different views and so forth. Now you get all that in there. We'll see. So beautiful. Can, you, 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 you just described how it was different in French than in English uh, to me once. Can you well, it's better different? poetry. I mean, no, they have a new translation, which is good. Uh, I think it's, 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 uh, uh, it's Moncrief. Moncrief was the first person. Then now uh, this recent one is Moncrief and uh, two others. Uh, God, I know their name. Uh, it's a very good translation. But it, it translates awkwardly sometimes because it seems stilted. It's not stilted in the French at all. Wonderful. You know, there's just one more book on your list of five, so I'll ask you about it. Uh, what did you learn what? from Austin's How to Do Things with Words? Ah, how to, how to fight for... <laughs> how to fight for a pragmatic or a purpose-based approach towards statutory interpretation rather than a textual version. Because I think that, I think they make various philosophical mistakes, the textualists, which uh, I've written down somewhere. And uh, I think that book helped a lot. Friends, as you know, we're a nonprofit and we rely on your support to put on wonderful programs like this. We are launching an exciting crowdsourcing uh, campaign. Thanks to our friends at the John Templeton Foundation, every dollar that you give to support the We the People and Live at the NCC podcasts will be matched one-to-one uh, -one, up to a total of $234,000 to celebrate the 234th anniversary of the ratification of the Constitution. Uh, you can go to constitutioncenter.org slash we the people, and it would be wonderful if you could give any amount, $5, $10 or more, to signal your membership in this meaningful community of lifelong learners and your support for uh, the programming that makes it possible. We have so many questions from the students and uh the first important one is um, your favorite uh, majority opinions and dissents that you've written. I have written probably the, uh, I've, I've written the, the ones that, that I 
put a lot of work on probably the I feel I well I don't know I, I put a lot of work in them anyway the, the one on the death penalty I was I think it is I wrote that it is about time to reconsider that and I wrote a long opinion 43 pages that's very long for me and the other which is more controversial was I thought but not I thought the court should give more leeway uh, than it seemed to be doing to school boards and other places on affirmative action and uh, uh, I can't guarantee my reasoning. Uh, you'd have to read it and see. But oddly enough, a case that I really enjoyed working on and is not necessarily the world's earth-shaking case, um, is a case, the question was, can you copyright a design that was the design of a cheerleader's costume? Now, why was that so interesting? Well, to me, it was interesting because it's a difficult legal question, but in part because it forced you to go into a world of art and, and, uh, and the world of art of fashion, which is certainly a form of art. And uh, we looked up all kinds of things. And my law clerk, I'm looking right now, and uh, she got me a, a lamp that has a kind of 1920s style and there's a cat over on the right made out of porcelain. And the, the law seemed to be that if that cat is over on the right, made out of porcelain, you could copyright it. But if it was on the left, where the cord ran through it, you couldn't. All right. Now we had to figure all that out and it wasn't just an intellectual thing, it was also artistic and, and uh, so I enjoyed that. I, that comes to my mind as a sort of you don't know what you'll get in this court. You don't know what kind of case you'll get. And, uh, but they matter, it matters to people. It matters to people who are going to draw, uh, buy uh, clothing because it has effect on the price. And uh, there we are. The other two, I, I probably have more significance. You mentioned the lamp, so I'll ask you what the etchings behind you are. They look uh, beautiful. Um, what, what are they? Those actually, the, the ones you meet up above. Yeah. Oh well, no, th those are from a courthouse. I think in, uh, uh, I think it was in Michigan, and it's that's supposed to be justice there, and they're, they're, they they have them in the inside. I think of the Capitol building, and I think now I haven't thought about them in a while where they're from, but I think it's either Wisconsin or Michigan, and and they're nice. Is that uh, you're allowed to do that as a privilege? You can go to the basement of the. I went to the basement of the uh, Museum of American Art. And they will let you borrow things that they're not exhibiting. And they weren't exhibiting those, so I borrowed them. We, we can't see the rest of your chambers, but are there, is there another piece of art or an artifact that is important to you? That you oh, have? the best, the most famous one I found is uh, uh, at that museum was, uh, what's his name, uh, Gilbert Stewart. He painted George Washington. Maybe you can see it. It's over. You see it over there? There. Oh, yeah. There. Oh, that's yeah. beautiful. And they weren't showing that it's a woman, so I borrowed it. Don't tell them; they might decide they want it back. <laughs> we, won't, we won't tell them. Who's the Who's the woman? I don't know. Unknown woman. Beautiful. And you care a lot about architecture and helped build the courthouse in Boston. Uh, why do you like architecture? Makes a difference. I learned a lot that year. I learned a lot from the architect, Harry Cobb. 
I learned a lot about looking at courthouses. I mean, the, the, the architecture, I hope people will go and look at it. What we really wanted to do, and why, why did Harry, when we had five, five architects and Judge Woodlock and I were in, on the panel that was going to choose the, the architects, and we had very, very good architects who applied. And uh, we made an effort to look at their buildings, others that they had designed, and we'd ask people, do you like working in this building? And how long have you been here? Do you like it or not? What do you think? And we wanted that affirmative action. And there were four or five, they said, yes, we do. And uh, okay, so Harry, what he showed us, he showed us a picture of a Virginia courthouse in the 17th century. He said, look at this, there's a spire that suggests it's a public building. There's a porch. That's a place where downtown people could meet who weren't lawyers and weren't judges and discuss the day or discuss their problems or discuss whatever they wanted. It was a public space. And inside there was one room. And in that one room, that's where the court's business goes on. Now he said, the challenge today is let me show you. And he showed us a picture of a courthouse recently built, where I won't say what city, but it was actually Los Angeles. And the, 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 uh, he said, is that a, a public building or is it an office building? Is it a courthouse or is it an apartment house? What is it? Huh. Uh-huh. We don't want that. We want a building that will tell the people who go in. I'll tell you something, says the building, the way you, are part of this system. This building belongs to you, Mr. Citizen, Mrs. Citizen. It is part of this community. And a function goes on here, a function that you take part in, say on the jury, or that you need to bring law and justice to this community. And it doesn't belong to the judges. And it doesn't belong to you have a lot of people there. You have some security people, you have judges, you have uh, a cafeteria, uh, you have uh, a daycare center, uh, you have a beautiful view uh, looking out over Boston Harbor. And when they, people come in here, I want them to think, ah. And when they go and look at a courtroom, a courtroom, even if there are 19 of them now, which is the problem, how do you get 19 in that Virginia courthouse? You can't. All right. You get a lot there, but it's individualized. You want people to think this is a place which belongs to the public, where the public's business is going on, which is serious and uh, where uh, the lawyers will have the center of the courtroom, because that's the place where the action takes place with the judge being over on one side, the jury being over on the other, the witness being over here. And that is the the the, the framework of the action which is taking place in front of the judge and the jury in the courtroom. You see, your building, community building, an attractive building, a serious building, a building that will, with architecture, help you understand what's going on and how you are part of it. We wanted that and we think Harry did a pretty good job and Ellsworth Kelly, that was a great thing that Senator Moynihan did. He got a bill passed that says every public building has to devote 1% or 2%, I can't remember the percentages of the construction budget to art. Mm. And if you go and look at the Ellsworth Kelly, who basically gave us his paintings way below cost, 
And uh, you, you go and you look in whatever direction you look, you see that little color, you see this color coming out over here and you think this is attractive. And I don't care if people do or do not think that's a great painter or this is a great architect or this is architecture, this or that. I wanna be able, as I can, ask them the question, how do you feel when you're in this building? Spirits rise, successful. Magnificent. So excited to hear about PayCob, and I'm thrilled to report PayCob designed the National Constitution Center, which is behind me. Oh, it's, it's the same. It's the same feeling. I, there's so many students who are hanging on your every word, really want to know about the personal dynamics within the court. Can you be friends with people you disagree with? You do debate civilly. What was your relationship with? late Justice Ginsburg, like give, give, give us a sense of what it's like and how you are able to have civil dialogue among people you disagree with on the court. The answer is, of course you can. Uh, I used to hear President Clinton, he would say, you know, hate the sin, love the sinner. And I'm not saying their views are a sin at all, but uh, I've been there many years, you know, and uh, every week just about, or most weeks, we have conferences and we sit around by ourselves on the table and we discuss the cases. And we don't always agree on those cases, as you well know. We agree more than you think. I mean, we agree almost half the time. We're unanimous. And the five fours are about, I don't know, 20%, 25%, 15%, depending on the year. And it's not the same five and same four. But regardless, there is uh, quite often fairly a disagreement. So, so what? I've never heard a voice raised in anger. Never. I have never heard people say mean things about each other, not even as a sort of joking. They don't. They don't. It's professional. Uh, you have uh, friendships and you have respect always. And just politics in the Senate, I saw that. Politics was one thing and personal relations is another. You may think the two congressmen or two senators aren't getting on because they have opposite political views, but personally they might. And in this institution, that's what I see. And Justice Ginsburg, well, of course, <laughs> I mean, I miss her. I just said that the other day. I said, we, were, we, were, we had, I was talking to my clerks about a case where I said, well, let's go see what Ruth thinks. Oh, there we are. There we are. Mm. And she went off with Justice Scalia to India and rode with him on the elephant. <laughs> there we are. People were always surprised that she could be such good friends with Justice Scalia. Yeah. And you're, but you're, you're yeah. of course, you're, you're, and you're friendly with Justice Thomas, of course, famously as well. Yes. Very, very decent person. You know, people can have different views than I have, or maybe you have, or whatever. That doesn't. They can, the world's a big place. And, and that's not corny and it's true. And if we didn't understand that, we wouldn't have 330 million people living together in, in pretty good peace in this country. Try to understand where they're coming from. You don't have to agree with it. You do have to make an effort to try to understand it. So, hey, you have a different view. So, so what? What kind of person is it? What kind of character does that person have? Um, 
and uh, that's the basis of friendship. What has it become harder to have those cross-partisan friendships, and have polarization and social media made it harder? I don't think social media has. I mean, you know, you don't have to watch it. <laughs> and it actually becomes easier if you're technically incompetent. It becomes easier <laughs> not to watch it. And, and uh, uh, polarization, it's not so much polarization here. It's, I mean, what you see, I, what I think happens is that political groups are, are polarized, perhaps more than they have been, which is worrying. All right, then when a judicial nomination comes up, they will try to get X or Y appointed or X or Y not appointed. And But that isn't because X or Y is going to act politically. It's because they think that X or Y will have jurisprudential views, sort of basic views about what law is like and the Constitution and so forth, that will correspond with what they think is politically good. That's a little complicated, but that's the only way I can understand how the fact that I see and what I do see is that judges are acting the way they think is the proper way to act as judges. And how do I reconcile that with these tremendously, you know, partisan statements and hearings in the political world? Well, they think they'll end up maybe, maybe they will in some cases, and maybe they won't in some cases. A lot of that remains to be seen and, and so forth. I'm always reluctant to hand the mic back to Curry, but we've kept you too long. We have about five minutes, if you'll, if you'll allow us to stay. Curry, there are just an explosion of questions, and I know you'll be great in choosing. If we could stay till two, and, and Curry will do better than I, than, than I do in picking um, uh, questions from the students. So uh, back to you, Curry. Wonderful. So as you can imagine, a million questions basically ending up with, how do I get your job? So the, stu <laughs> the students are really interested in the jobs you had before you became a Supreme Court justice, were you the Cunningham class, Colin, Milo. They were all wondering, you know, did you always want to be a justice? And then Colin pointed out a really good question. What about the other jobs like clerks? What do you look for in a clerk? So a lot of questions from all of the students about like career choices. No, oh, well, the clerks, they're, they're, they're great. I love my clerks. They keep me, you know, on my toes, and it's great. They're great. Uh, they, they, it's a job for a year, and I, they usually have done very, very well in law school. They're, 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 they have good grades, and the teachers think they're great, and they've, they've worked for another judge, uh, usually on the Court of Appeals, and, and I will probably select clerks on the ground. I, I meet them, and I, I, a lot have They'll have a nice personality and be able to get on with me, which is which is necessary. And uh, uh, I'll ask, how did they do in their last job? I'll ask the judge, and that's the the uh, the normal thing. Then they'll stay here for a year, and then they'll go on to the other thing, and they have to make their lives for themselves. You know, as far as my my life is, I've been pretty lucky in my life. I mean. I became law at that time, if you go back to the 1950s and 60s, I mean, I'm not saying it isn't true today, but children used to do what their parents said. <laughs> and uh, my father was a lawyer, he was a lawyer for the school board in San Francisco. This is his watch here, 40 years. And uh, so it was sort of, I thought I'd probably like to be a lawyer. And uh, I did go to law school and I did clerk for a year for Justice Goldberg. And um, then I worked in the Justice Department 
for two years in the antitrust division. And then I got an offer to teach from Harvard Law School. So I went there and taught for about 14 years. And during that time, I spent some time uh, working for Archie Cox when he was doing Watergate. And then I, I worked for about two or three years with Senator Kennedy um, uh, when he was chairman of the Judiciary Committee. One thing sort of leads to another. And, and then there was a vacancy and through total fluke, I was appointed to the Court of Appeals in the First Circuit. And then when the vacancy came up here, first time I didn't, I wasn't appointed. And then I was considered again and I was appointed the next time there was a vacancy. So all those things, there, there is no way. You don't know. I mean, of course you don't know. Don't count. Of course, I would have liked to have been a Supreme Court justice if somebody asked me. But, but I mean, that isn't going to happen. Uh, it's like lightning. To be a federal judge, I usually think lightning has to strike twice, once, once. And to be on the court, Supreme Court, it has to strike twice in the same place. And what Tom Clark used to say, when he was a justice here, he said, well, you, it's like, he said, you can't control it. He said, but you, you can. He said, it's it's helpful to be on the corner when the bus comes by. <laughs> All right. And so my father would have said that. Mean, do, 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 you'll get a job. You know, I, I say, lighten up, too. You'll get a job. And uh, do it as well as you can. And listen to other people. And you do your job well and listen to other people. And that helps you do it well. And you may get a better job. Someone may notice. But even if you don't. You at least have the satisfaction of having done that job well. And that in itself is sufficient, should be. There we are. There is no secret. So do your best you can at what you do. No matter where you are. I love that theory. That's a good well, that's rule for true. life. That's yeah. the best you can do. I so um, the Ro Robert Hobgood's class is one of the teachers that we work with all year long. Awesome teacher. Wanted you to know that um, he is proud to say that you're a bit of a rock star in his civics AP government class. Oh, Quite right. notorious. Um, yeah. I, because they've used a couple of video clips that you've done with the Constitution Center before mm. and Annenberg Foundation. And there was one in particular that the students were really interested in on judicial independence. Um, so would you like to talk a little bit about the pr principle of judicial independence and the, the role of judicial independence? Yeah, well, it's, it's pretty important. It's very important. Uh, that's why, that's why uh, Hamilton wrote into the uh, Constitution that judges will be appointed for life. They, he didn't say life. He said on good behavior and uh, will receive a salary that is not diminished or compensation that is not diminished. He thought that would help make them independent. It does help some, but it's it's not always honored. Uh, think of inflation, all right? But, but uh, um, it's a frame of mind, and I say, well, it's a, it's a frame of mind that, that that you have to develop. And for example, are you being true to the record when you read the record of a case? If you're an appellate judge, are you reading it honestly for what it says? Because nobody will know. I mean, the, the lawyer who wins will say, sure, it was great. And the lawyer who loses will say, he didn't read it right. And But you, there we are. And who will actually know? You will know. And so you have to do that. Uh, and the same, maybe double with the press. Double. I mean, of course it pleases you when someone comp compliments you. But beware. And don't look for it you won't find it. 
And uh, what Paul Batrock told me years ago, which is slightly facetious, but I think it's quite funny. He says, when you write a book, don't necessarily read the reviews. Now, here's why. No, of course you're going to read the reviews. But he says, the reason you really shouldn't is because if it's a bad review, why would you want to read it? And if it's a good review, you'll think, ah, oh, but do they know how really good it is? <laughs> <laughs> and there's, But ultimately, the best thing I heard on the judicial independence is, I mean, the reason's obvious for independence. Would you like to have a judge there sitting there if you're totally innocent and you're very unpopular in your community? And he has to, I mean, you understand that. Okay. Uh, but uh, Justice Kennedy, and a few of us were speaking to some Russian judges. And uh, he was talking about independence and he said, well, a judge can understand and can empathize with a di different judge in a different system on the matter of being independent. He can't know whether that judge is really being independent. He can't know how the, the case in front of him, that other judge, how it should turn out. But he can understand the feeling of the effort to remain independent. It's a kind of loneliness and a kind of anxiety. Agony's too strong. Sometimes it isn't. <laughs> and uh, it's trying to get to, the, to where you think it should be. But at the same time, it's complicated by the fact if you're dealing with eight other colleagues, you want to reach an opinion and you better be willing to compromise. And how much compromise? How much and when? And there's no treatise that gives you an answer to that question. That's internal. I think that is an unbelievable charge to actually send our students off into the summer with is this idea of understanding when to be independent and stand on your own alone and then mm -hmm. understanding when to come to the table and engage in compromise and balancing that in the appropriate ways so that's unbelievably helpful we'll all have to spend our entire life trying to figure that out as we go along mm -hmm. and then measuring against you told us earlier to use our character to say are we measuring ourselves appropriately against ourselves and not to listen to others but to listen to self so thank you so much for wrapping up this fantastic year of classes with such brilliance and such grace that we can really understand the dignity of the law and the dignity of the people so thank you so much jeff i'll turn it back to you for final words you said it so well, Curry. Thank you, Justice Breyer, for inspiring us to be our best selves, for inspiring us to learn about the Constitution and to think deeply and to empathetically and to listen to others, and justice for being a model of moderation, prudence, civility, kindness, and decency, and for being such a great teacher and such a great human being and such a great friend to the National Constitution Center. Thank you, students, for learning with us, for all of your passion and engagement, and let's follow Justice Breyer's example by learning and growing and uh, uniting around the principles of the Constitution. Justice, have a wonderful summer, and we really look forward to welcoming you to the NCC in the fall to, to, to talk about your new book. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. This episode was produced by Melody Rowell, Jackie McDermott, Lana Ulrich, Curry Saltner, and the education team at the National Constitution Center. It was engineered by Greg Sheckler. 
Visit constitutioncenter.org slash debate to see a list of resources mentioned throughout this episode, find the full lineup of our upcoming shows, and register to join us virtually. You can join us via Zoom, watch our live YouTube stream, or watch the recorded videos after the fact in our media library at constitutioncenter.org slash constitution. As always, we'll share those programs on the podcast too, so be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. If you like the show, you can help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts or by following us on Spotify. Find us back here next week. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Tanea Tauber. <laughs>